Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Let me read them for us. Next week, we'll go to a different prayer. I know we've been in, when we started this prayer, I intended to do one week, and this is our third week. But next week, we're moving to another one in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 1, 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I want you to imagine you're at your high schoolers, track and field regional finals. She's already run the 100-meter relay, and she won't run the 200 for probably half hour or so. So you mosey over to watch some of the field events. The shot putters are competing when you get there, and they're well-matched, and some of them are remarkably good. A couple of them are, are hitting the 60-foot the line. At that moment, your school has a pretty good lead, which might be unsurpassable. And then a shot putter from another school steps up, he gets in the circle, hoists the shot, gets into position, he spins and he releases and the shot flies not 60 feet, not 65 feet, but 75 feet. He doesn't beat the previous throw by inches, but by 15 feet. It's astounding, it's miraculous. What word would you use to describe the difference between this shot putter's throw and all the rest? Well, Greek has the perfect word for it. It's hooperbalon, which means literally throw beyond, and figuratively to outdo something by a long shot. That's the word Paul uses to describe God's power. Not even in the same ballpark with any other power we can Name or conceive, it's beyond our grasp. When Paul wrote this, the Roman Empire was the paradigm of power in the world. Its enormous standing army, its garrison cities, its elite special forces, its latest military hardware was beyond anything any other earthly power possessed. But God's power surpasses Rome's like the world record shot putter surpasses the high school freshman's best throw. In order to impress his readers with the enormity of God's power, this is one of the three things Paul wants, he's praying for these Christians to know. So if you didn't hear the other sermons, pick up CDs or listen online so you get the other two. This is the third of those three things that Paul is praying that these people will know. God's power. And he piles on one descriptor after another of God's power. You could translate verse 19 like this. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe according to, and now listen to how he piles it on, the working power, we get our word energy from this word, of the ruling power. 
power, the word autocrat comes from that root, of the forceful power of him. The primary word for power here is frequently translated miracle in the Gospels. So a miracle is an expression of God's power, and God's power is nothing short of miraculous. The word has the idea, the the primary word for power has the idea of ability, and is sometimes translated that way. To possess power is to possess the ability to do what one chooses. In its verb form, the word's frequently translated as I am able or I can. I have power to do this. I'm able, I can. We are not always able. Human power is strictly limited. Uh, We can't do everything we choose to do. I may choose to open a jar of homemade preserves, but lack the ability, the power, to unscrew the lid. Jesus pointed out that we lack the power to add a single hour to our lifespan, no matter how desperate we are to do so. Human power is limited. Even collective human power as it's displayed in government or business, is limited. Rome might have been the paradigm of power in the first century with its enormous army and its advanced weaponry, but even Rome lacked the power to root out rebellion. Rome lacked the power to end starvation and disease. Rome didn't possess the ability to create a just society based on mutual respect. And though we've come a long way since the first century, Today's superpower doesn't have the ability to do those things either. God does. His power knows no limits. Now, a critic will immediately think, then why is there still starvation and disease? Why does justice evade us? Where is universal human respect? If God wants these things and he is so powerful, why hasn't he made them happen? You know, there's no getting around it. That's a difficult question with a multi-part answer, and none of us have all the parts. So even after we've given our best and truest answer, there's still much about that we don't understand. But here at least is one part of the answer. God has chosen to demonstrate his ability to do those things through us, the saints, effectively transferring or better investing some of his incredible power in his people. He's doing that because he wants to demonstrate what he can do through the church. Later in this same letter, Paul will write of God's immeasurable, unimaginable ability. It's the verb form of this noun that we have here translated as power, which is at work, he says. Where is it at work? In the church. But before writing that, Paul tells the Ephesians that God's intention is to make known to rulers and authorities his wisdom, the absolute brilliance and effectiveness of his plan and to do so through the church. The church is God's proving ground, his test track. The church is intended by God to be a model of what can happen, what he has the power to make happen in the world. The church is on display as the prototype 
of God's wisdom and power. Every year in January, just a few weeks ago, Las Vegas uh, hosts the country's biggest tech show. Maybe it's the world's biggest tech show. People come from all over to see the latest tech innovation. So there's self-driving cars there, there are delivery drones, there are next generation software solutions, even bathroom mirrors that respond to voice command and turn on the shower or make it warmer or soften the lights. This year at the tech show, Charbroil, the grill maker, introduced smart propane grills, which will take the temperature of your meat. You can look at it on your phone wherever you are. You can raise or lower the heat at your command. Uh, if a burner goes out, it will tell you. Next year's model will actually eat your steak, I think. <laughs> so imagine you're at the tech show. You, you wander over to the charbroil display. The guy doing the demonstration looks at his app. He shows it to you on the phone. It tells him the temperature of his T-bone, it's 130 degrees. That's not high enough. So he touches his phone screen and the grill turns up the heat to medium high. He shows his audience the phone, he smiles knowingly, and then something happens. Flames start leaping from the grill. They catch the display deck and then the backyard furniture on fire and the entire Las Vegas World Trade Center has to be evacuated. Probably not going to generate a lot of investors in that. Now think of the church, God's display. He is demonstrating his know-how in a group of very imperfect people, transforming them into the, and this is Dallas Willard's definition, the all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself, God, is its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. And as God transforms us into this work of art, functional art, by the way, we experience his power in our lives. Our desires begin to change, as do our attitudes and our relationships, and we gradually become that beautiful community of loving persons. While undergoing this transformation, we, we are witnesses to Jesus' power. We experience it. And others see it in our lives. They see what God is capable of doing, his demonstration in the church. But when we sin and fall short of the glory of God, when we, we fall short of bringing glory to God, because we refuse to give, refuse to forgive, we act hypocritically, we gossip, we mislead, we manipulate. When that happens, we catch fire. We burn down the display and empty the church. And there aren't many people wanting to buy in when that happens. It's just astounding that God said, I am going to put all of this on the church. Knowing what we're like. This is my plan. And I don't have a plan B. Paul longs for Christians to know to the full extent of their mind's ability the supreme greatness of God's power. He knows that when the spirit of wisdom and revelation opens people's eyes to God's surpassing power, it changes them. It gives rise to reverence in them what the ancients called the fear of the Lord and makes them passionate worshipers. As our knowledge and experience of God's power grows, 
the fear of failure, the fear of people, the fear of the future, the fear of privation is extinguished. That's why, by the way, Joshua and Caleb could say, let's go into the promised land. While everyone else was saying, we can't do it, we can't do it. They had seen the power of God. Knowing the power of God sets people free to try, to give, to enjoy, to love. We need to know, need to know to the very limits of our ability, the power that God possesses. That power, Paul says, is for us who believe, or literally for us the believing. Now, how accurate a description is that of you? John the believing, Dawn the believing, Emily the believing, Ethan the believing. Not everyone is in a position to experience or take advantage of the power that Paul is talking about. It is for the believing. And that begs the question, so let's go back to it. What are the believing? Believing. In my experience, many people who confess faith in God have little more than a blur or a smear of religious thoughts, often quite pagan, about a God who is generally nice and will look after us and take us to heaven when we die. Would Paul recognize those folks as the believing? I don't think so. A fuzzy belief in God was everywhere in Paul's day. Didn't mean much to him. The believing believe in Jesus, the Lord, the rightful ruler of the earth. They believe that what Jesus says is true and his sacrifice is sufficient. The believing have more than head knowledge. They have a heart that is a command center, commitment to Jesus, the Lord. There is a correlation between belief and the experience of God's power. It happens in individuals and happens in entire churches. In the Gospels, there's a remark made in passing by the narrator that has enormous implications for the experience of God's power. The evangelist comments, and he, he's talking about Jesus, he didn't do many miracles there. Why didn't he? Because of their lack of faith. St. Mark says something even more startling. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. God's power, that energetic, working, ruling, overcoming power is for the believing, whose belief becomes a conduit for the exercise of his power. But what if I doubt? There's not a person here who's ever taken seriously God who hasn't doubted, myself included. What if I doubt? Doubt's not a big problem. Unbelief is. Doubt exists in the absence of knowledge, and when knowledge is supplied, the doubter believes. But unbelief, the refusal to believe, is different. It's not motivated by a lack of knowledge but by an unwillingness to commit. Doubt is routinely the predecessor of belief. Unbelief is the predecessor of ruin. Is the power of God capable of meeting our needs? 
It is. As difficult as your situation may be, just consider Jesus was worse. Jesus' situation was worse. He was dead. And in the grave, when God's power changed everything, one minute Jesus was dead and gone, the next he was alive and raised. He was an impotent corpse. Then he was the ruler of heaven and earth. And Paul says that God's power for us is just like that power. So that power, this is verse 19, is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, same power, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. If you're in need of power, that capable, energetic, authoritative, overcoming power, the person to see is Jesus. He's been raised to the heights of power. That's verse 21. All things have been subjected to him. That's the beginning of verse 22. And he has been appointed head over everything for the church. All the resources of the universe he can distribute as he chooses. Now, if you're not in the church, this power isn't for you. But if you are in the church, that is, you've joined Jesus and believe in him, he's the one to go to. It's important to realize this power is not meant for individuals in isolation from the church. Let me say that again. This is not meant for individuals in isolation from the church. God loves the church of Jesus so much, he chose it for his inheritance. He invests in the church and he values it tremendously. He releases his power to the believing. That means if you're not in the body of Christ, if the church is not important to you, you're not invested in it, you're not going to see much of God's power. There are people who are not in the church, not involved in its mission, not committed or even giving thought to what God is doing in the world, summing up all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ, who still wish to see God's power in their lives. They really do. They're not faking it. They really want this. They want God to use his great power to get them a job or cure their disease or change their son's attitude, but none of that is happening, and they can't understand why. So they give to a TV ministry that promises quid pro quo that God will heal them or help them, but it appears that God's not keeping up his end of the bargain. They pray. They ask others to pray. Nothing seems to happen. Why not? Because they're not where the power is. Imagine you're living on Lockwood Road in 1936. You don't have electricity, and you don't really trust it either. None of your neighbors have electricity, but then Edna and her husband, he works at the car dealership in town, become the first to sign up. The electric company runs a wire from Angola Road to the New Pole and then to their house. If you want to see what electricity can do, you need to go to Edna's house. They've put in electric lights, a refrigerator, super cool, even a toaster. The only way you'll see electric power at your house is if lightning strikes. And that doesn't happen very often. Just so God's power can strike anyone at any time, inside the church or outside the church. But it doesn't happen very often to people outside the church. Now, for us, 
Western Christians, this is hard to understand because we tend to see a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We like to use that language. We tend to see that in isolation from Jesus' mission, his church, and God's glorious inheritance in the saints. But when God displays his power, it happens where Jesus is obeyed and his mission is advanced. Since the church is the prototype, the test site, the working model for what God can do, it's also where we find his power. Now, imagine again that it's 1936 and you've just got on the bandwagon. You've been down at Edna's house and you've come home and said, we got to do that. And you've had the electric company run a wire to your house. You've got two electric lights now in your kitchen. You have uh, a lamp in your living room and one in each of your bedrooms. You have five places where electricity can actually accomplish something in your house. And it's a good start. Now, Jump forward 30 years, it's 1966, and those five light bulbs are still the only electric-using devices in your home. Now, it's what you've become accustomed to, and you don't think much about it, but you're not experiencing many of the benefits electricity could provide. Similarly, if we have little outlet for the power of God, we'll have little experience of the power of God. And many people don't have much outlet for the power of God. For, for, I think, many of us, the first time we become aware of God's power is when it flows through us to someone else. That's supposed to happen in the church all the time. Power runs through me for you, through you for me, through us for everyone else. A Christian who doesn't serve others doesn't experience God's power, at least not very often. We want God's power in our lives. God's wants, God wants our lives in his church. Delivering power where it's needed. Because remember, the church is his demonstration of what he can do in the world. And when the church isn't working right, people don't see it. If you want to become a conductor of God's power, as well as a recipient of it, I have a suggestion for you. Begin praying seriously for something. So I'll give you some examples. For children's ministry. We have, a, we have a children's ministry that is very active and in transition and needs lots of prayer. Or for family ministry or youth ministry. Or for some person. For example, one of the people that we prayed for from the prayer panel in the bulletin this morning. Start praying seriously Make yourself available to God for his will regarding that person or ministry, not just in your prayers. If he brings something to mind for you to do, and it can be as simple as sending a card or making a phone call, do it. That's how you plug in. Now, it's not simply volunteering for a job. Anybody can volunteer for a job. This is connecting to God so that his energy can flow through you. Every time someone does that, a light comes on in the church. And when we all do it, the church becomes the success of the entire exhibition known as life on earth. The church becomes, in Jesus' metaphor, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let's light things up. Let's light things up. Let's say, God, I'm here. I'm willing. I'm yours for your people. We're going to close our time this morning by praying Paul's prayer for our church family.
Let's personalize it uh, to our situation. So we'll change a few words in there, but this is that prayer, and I invite you to join me in it. Would you, it'll be on the screen. Would you pray it with me? God of our Lord Jesus Christ, glorious Father, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better, that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing.